0: well good evening everybody welcome to our good friday service i'm so blessed to be able to be here with you even if it's only uh, through virtual means but we uh, thank the lord for that and uh, let's open in prayer heavenly father we come before you tonight in jesus precious name to remember what you did for us lord jesus so many years ago to celebrate even though you suffered you gave us the joy to celebrate what your death means to us, eternal life with you and your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this service for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, guys, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. I've simply named this message, christ crucified we want to pick it up tonight matthew 27 verse 33 and when they had come to a place called golgotha that is to say place of a skull they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink but when he had tasted it he would not drink when then they crucified him and divided his garments casting lots that I might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So cruel and barbaric was crucifixion, that Rome forbid its own citizens to be crucified no matter what they did. So abhorrent was even the mention of crucifixion that it was taboo as a topic of polite conversation. One author said, and I quote, we have yet to see an accurate full depiction of crucifixion in modern media. If it were ever made, it would be limited to adult audiences because of its intense horror And brutality. You know, it's interesting. None of the gospel writers focus on the details of the crucifixion. Matthew simply records in verse thirty-five, "Then they crucified him." I mean, that's got to be one of the great understatements in all the Bible. I think this is due in part because the Holy Spirit didn't want to, you know, sensationalize the crucifixion, but also because everyone in Matthew's day knew full well what crucifixion entailed. I mean, there was no need to emphasize the obvious. However, what was obvious to them in Matthew's day is completely obscure to us in our day. Let me try to give you a little background. I don't want to do all this too long, but I do want to give you a little background about crucifixion. First of all, crucifixion was originally invented by the Persians. Historian William Barclay said, and I quote, it originated in Persia, and its origin came from the fact that the earth was considered to be the sacred was considered to be sacred to Ormuzd the god and the criminal was lifted up from it that he might not defile the earth which was the god's property now guys although the romans didn't invent crucifixion they were the ones that perfected it as one of the cruelest forms of execution ever invented ever imaginable Designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. In fact, so painful was crucifixion that they had to invent a word to describe it. A Latin word we get our English word excruciating from. The New Testament, in the in New Testament crucifixions involved the condemned criminal carrying his cross to the place where the execution would take place, which in Jesus' case was Golgotha. At that point, the cross was laid in the ground, while Jesus was made to lay on top of it. First of all, the soldiers took the nails and the nail and pounded it into his feet. Uh, they were nailed first to the cross, and then his uh, arms were stretched the uh, over the uh, horizontal beam and nailed through the wrist just above the hand, allowing a slight bend in the knees for when the body was extended. The cross was then picked up and dropped in a hole with a thud. I mean, that in itself was caused excruciating pain, as now the full weight of Jesus' body in this case uh, was now being held by the cross, on the cross, by the nails in his hands and the nail in his feet. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar describes crucifixion as follows. He said, and I quote, a Death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death, uh, all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly things that accompany uh, the dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation mortification of intended wounds all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gained green, uh, especially when a victim took several days to die, which they often did. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and depressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal anxiety which made the prospect of death itself a delicious and exquisite escape. One thing is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture, which completely humiliated him. And it is important that we understand this for it helps us to realize the agony of Christ's death, end quote. Well, that was written in 1877. An article that appeared much later than that, that appeared in the Arizona Medical Journal, written by Dr. Truman Davis, entitled The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, he adds some additional insights into what Jesus would have endured while dying on the cross. He said, and I quote, At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation. Searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp. In small gulps of air and you get the idea look it's critically important for us to remember that Jesus was no victim of circumstances he affirmed this when he said in John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 no one takes my life from me by force I lay it down for the sheep of my own will in Matthew 27 verse 33 we read And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. Let me just stop there. The Latin for Golgotha is Calvary. Uh, They both mean place of a skull. Now, some interpret this to mean that Jesus was crucified uh, on a burial ground, like a cemetery. Uh, A place called the place of a skull because of all the skulls of dead bodies that were found there. let me just say this to you. The Romans never crucified people in remote locations away from the population, away from the public, as in a cemetery. They always crucified criminals along the road. There was a, a reason for that. They wanted these criminals to be looked upon, mocked, spit upon. They wanted maximum humiliation to be heaped upon the person being crucified, not only because they were punishing this person as a criminal worthy of death, but they wanted this person to suffer not only physically but the pain of humiliation which meant they would strip the, the prisoner naked. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, although we don't see it in the pictures and the uh, things of, of the crucifixion, he was stripped naked to maximize the humiliation, allowing people to mock and spit on him and so on. This was all by design. The Roman government wanted to strike fear in the hearts of any who would even think down the road of uh, of uh, rebelling against Roman law because this is what would happen to you and they didn't want people na- naturally, not just because of the pain of crucifixion, but the humiliation which in that culture was a big thing, they didn't want to endure that. Besides, guys, it wasn't called place of skulls, it was called place of a skull. And I believe this was a reference to a place right outside the walls of Jerusalem, just to the north which is called today gordon's calvary where they have found the actual garden tomb jesus was buried in at least i believe that's the the tomb many others do as well and um if you've ever been there that you will see that um there is a cave uh, in the hill uh, on the side of the hill that looks like a skull and uh, so jesus was crucified right near this cave and the cave itself looks like go online and check it out but uh, it looks like a skull, the way this cave is shaped. And um, that, we believe, was the place of a skull that John or Matthew talks about, the place where Jesus was crucified, Calvary. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. So he was put on the cross at 9 a.m., and then from the 6th hour, noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness all over over all the land. Now, this couldn't have been an eclipse, as some have proposed. Skeptics want to write this whole thing off as being a natural phenomenon. It was an eclipse, but uh, it was not an eclipse because uh, it was Passover time. Passover always takes place during a full moon. The Jews were on a lunar calendar. It always takes place during a full moon. And during a full moon, the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from an eclipse, all right? Now I believe that this was a supernatural darkness, a supernatural darkness. Almost as if as one author put it, and I'm quoting him, the creation could no longer could no longer bear to see its creator suffering on that cross and closed its eyes. Verse 46, At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Habakkuk, the prophet, said something important at this point I wanna just mention to you. In Habakkuk 1 verse 13, the prophet said of God, "'You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, "'and cannot look on wickedness.'" Guys, when Jesus became sin, on that cross for us in other words when he took upon himself the sins of humanity well the father could no longer have fellowship with him and looked away you might say he cannot bear to look upon sin the father looked away turned his face away from the son and in that regard he forsook the son fellowship with the son was broken for the first and only time in eternity remember how John starts his gospel In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, the term, the Word was with God, is a Greek phrase that means eye-to-eye with, in perfect fellowship with. So at this moment in history, when Jesus became sin for us, the Father turned His face from the Son, breaking fellowship with Him, because God cannot bear to look upon sin. Of course, after Jesus paid for the sin, was resurrected, of course, the Father and Son's fellowship was once again restored but the very momentous incident here. And I believe in my heart, this was one of the reasons Jesus was, uh, was most fearful of that. I, I, I don't think he was obviously looking forward to the physical pain. I think what terrified him the most was that for the only time in, in all of eternity, his fellowship with the Father was gonna be broken because of sin, sin laid upon him. And I think that that really caused him such torment in his spirit it's hard for us to even imagine. He, he began to sweat drops of blood because he was so uh, burdened and, uh, and all over that prospect. Verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Some of those standing near the cross misunderstood Jesus' words. They heard Eli, but thought Jesus was trying to call for Elijah. Now in the Greek, the word Elijah sounds a lot more like Eli than it does in English. But thinking his lips and throat had become dry, Someone thought a drink of wine vinegar would moisten his vocal cords so he could speak clearly. Didn't realize at the time that that person didn't realize that they were actually fulfilling prophecy because in Psalm 69 verse 21, Jesus speaking through the psalmist said, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now others said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. See, they were looking for Elijah because of a prophecy God gave them through the prophet Malachi. You can read about this in Malachi 4, verse 5, saying at one point, God was going to send to them Elijah. And they were especially looking for Elijah to come at Passover time. In fact, to this day, Orthodox in Orthodox Jewish homes, when they will set the table for Passover, they always set... Another place, an empty chair for Elijah. And at one point during the Passover Seder, the youngest in the family runs to the front door, opening it up, expecting to see Elijah because they're looking for Elijah, especially at Passover time. Now, as we said, Jesus hung on that cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and those six hours were divided into two parts. The first three hours were in light. And the last three were in darkness during the first three hours jesus spoke three times he said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing you'll find that in luke 23 verse 34 then he said not long after and not long after that he said to the penitent thief beside him truly i say to you today you shall be with me in paradise that's recorded in luke 23 verse 43 And then he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John the Apostle. And then he said to John, Behold your mother. John, take care of her. From that moment on, it says John took her to stay with him, and she lived with John, and John took care of her until the day of her death. But is Jesus' dying, a terrible, torturous death, yet he is still thinking about others? Our Savior is amazing. Still thinking about the welfare of others, he's hanging on this cross enduring excruciating pain yet he wants his mom to be taken care of and then from noon to 3 p.m we read in matthew 27 verse 45 that darkness fell over all the land yes on jerusalem and its suburbs but historical records indicate it may have affected a much larger area than that. The Greek word for land can also be translated earth, earth, indicating that the darkness could have affected an area maybe as wide as the entire Middle East, and it could have even affected the whole Eastern Hemisphere. The early church father Origen reported a statement by a Roman historian. This is from Rome, speaking from Rome who mentions this darkness. There was also a supposed report from Pilate to Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, that alluded to the emperor's knowledge of a certain widespread darkness, even mentioning that it was from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. Now guys, during the three hours of darkness, the Lord Jesus spoke three more times. He said, I thirst, recorded in John 19, verse 28. Then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, verse 46. And then finally he said, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. Now when our Lord uttered those final words, it is finished, he bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, and died. He said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down freely for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Nobody chose the hour or nothing chose the hour or the moment of Jesus' death. He chose the moment of his death. And so he bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, and died. And when Jesus died, three miracles took place. Two of them were immediate and simultaneous. And the third miracle was delayed until Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew records this. In Matthew 27, starting with verse 51, let me read it to the NLT 2nd edition. It reads, verse 51, at that moment, the very moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women, those would be believers in Jesus, who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Wow. So the two miracles that took place simultaneously, the instant Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake that split rocks and opened numerous graves in the area. The third miracle, as we said, was delayed until after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Looking at this, these miracles in reverse order, so looking at the last first, the first miracle consisted of a group of Jesus' disciples that had died, uh, were buried in those tombs that, says verse 52 says, were opened all right, when Jesus died, and these folks were resurrected. Resurrected. A group of these believers in Jesus who had died were now resurrected, and after his, uh, uh, after, you know, they were resurrected after he rose, but then they came out of the tombs and into the city and uh, showed themselves to many. Now, that had to be, I, I would imagine they were witnessing. I can't imagine too many people turned them down. Uh, many knowing that they had died and here they were alive again. Very powerful witness. Um, but I kind of wish Matthew would have given us a little more with, about these people, such as, did they die again as Lazarus did when Jesus ro- uh, uh, resurrected him from the dead? He was resurrected in his physical body and eventually died again, okay? Um, Or, as I believe, and this is just my conviction, that they were raised from the dead with glorified bodies, right? Like the church will be uh, at the time of the rapture. And uh, they, they were resurrected with glorified bodies and were taken to heaven with Jesus when he ascended back to the Father after his Resurrection, spending 40 more days on the earth before ascending back to the Father. But uh, this little group of saints that were resurrected uh, right after Jesus' resurrection, kind of like a little rapture preview, I guess. Uh, why do I believe that? Why do I believe that? Well, I guess it's just my feelings, okay? But uh, I believe it because of what Paul taught in First Corinthians 15 about resurrection. Uh, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's just a way of saying believers in Christ when they die, not like unbelievers when they die. It's like we're just sleeping. Although, you know, it's not soul sleep, okay? Our soul doesn't sleep. Our body sleeps uh, in the grave. Our soul and spirit, as believers, go on to be with the Lord. And at the rapture, everything is reunited, and we are, again, a triune being. But um, Jesus Christ... Um, rose the dead on the very Feast of Firstfruits. Paul said he was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or those who have died believing in him. What does that actually mean? Well, again, there was a Jewish feast known as the Feast of Firstfruits. It was an agricultural feast that took place in the spring of the year when the first stalks or firstfruits of the barley crop would begin to come up out of the ground. So you have the first shoots, Of the barley crop coming up out of the ground at this time. Barley was planted in the winter and uh, it was the first crop to be harvested in Israel. And spring would bring these little first stalks or first shoots or first fruits of this crop. And the idea was on the Feast of First Fruits, these first shoots of the barley harvest would be cut down and they would be brought to the temple where the priest would wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. In other words, God always got the first. We always wanted to. They always wanted to honor God as he had commanded uh, with the first of everything, first of their crops, their livestock, and so on. And so they would bring an offering to God of the first fruits of the barley harvest, and they would wave it before the Lord, the priest would, and God would accept the offering. He would be honored by the fact that they brought him the fir- first fruits, they were putting him first was the idea. And so then he would guarantee them a bumper crop that would come up out of the ground uh, that they would enjoy at the time of the great or the main harvest when that took place. That was in like the uh, summertime, early summer, or late summer, I should say. Now, what seems to have happened with these folk? this is one of the strangest uh, accounts in the New Testament. I'm just going to share a little bit more and we'll move on, but... Uh, what seems to have happened was that Jesus rose first. Of course, he's preeminent in all things, the Bible tells us. So he rose first, and then a group of his disciples who had died rose after him. And when Jesus ascended back to his father, uh, all of these went with him. And together they presented themselves as firstfruits to the father, as firstfruits of, of the coming resurrection, the coming harvest of all believers in Jesus Christ. And of course, these were accepted by the Father, and the guaranteeing that a great harvest of souls would come up out of the ground at the time of the great uh, resurrection, the rapture, and the, these saints will come up out of the ground and be taken into heaven. So it was just a little preview and a little first fruit presentation guaranteeing that a great harvest of souls would come up from the ground, that would be at the rapture, the church would be resurrected, and so on. And uh, number two, though, the second miracle that took place when Jesus died was an earthquake. Now, we read in verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Guys, earthquakes were not seen on the earth before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. After man fell, God has used earthquakes from time to time throughout human history, throughout the centuries, as a judgment upon man uh, man for his wickedness and rebellion against God, Um, always locally. But there is coming a time when God will use earthquakes globally, globally. In Hebrews 12, you don't have to turn there, but verses 26 and 27, it tells us that before Jesus returns to the planet Earth to establish his kingdom, God is going to shake this planet so violently, so violently. Don't forget now the earth has become an object of worship uh, in many people's hearts. And all that's in the earth and, uh, and all the treasures and riches, and they become an, an, an object of worship, idol. And so God is going to at one point shake this planet so violently that everything that is material will be destroyed. And only that which is spiritual will remain. In other words, all the works we have done for Jesus, they'll remain. All those who have been redeemed by Jesus, of course, they will not be lost. The book of Revelation talks about three great earthquakes that will take place during the last seven years before Jesus' second coming. The last one is so powerful that Isaiah the prophet tells us that the earth will be split wide open. Now, guys, after this... And after the return of Jesus to the earth, and after his thousand-year millennial kingdom, after all of that, another resurrection another resurrection will take place. The graves of all unbelievers will be opened, and they will stand before the Lord Jesus to be judged at what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. You can read about that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And guys, this will be the final judgment of mankind where all unbelievers will be resurrected to stand before the righteous judge of all the earth. And uh, they are going to be eventually then cast into the lake of fire, the second death, which will be for all eternity. But here's the thing. A lot of people think the great white throne of judgment is where unbelievers are going to go and be able to plead their case, okay? Uh, Stand before the judge and make their case for their innocence. Well, a lot of unbelievers may think that is what is going to happen, that when they stand before God, I'm going to tell God how good I was on the earth and certainly he'll listen to me and I'll get into heaven. They don't realize that the case has already been decided. In the Garden of Eden, God pronounced the human race guilty when Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, that sin would pass down through to all of their descendants. Mankind was already, uh, was already guilty. Uh, condemned by God, remember what Jesus said, he said, this, that he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. And he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe, listen, is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, unbelievers don't realize that there's no day in court to make their case. The case has been decided many centuries ago. They're guilty. So what happens at the great white throne, Judgment? It's the sentencing phase. Look, if a person commits a crime and goes to court and they're found guilty, they're taken back to their cell and they wait for a future day, I don't know, a month or two down the road, where they will come back into court and the judge will pronounce their sentence for their crime. This is what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment. This is what Jesus said that there are degrees of punishment in hell, just as there are degrees of reward in heaven. But there are degrees of punishment in hell, and depending on how bad a life a person has lived, that will determine, you know, I mean, uh, nobody goes to hell because of their bad works or or evil deeds. They go to hell because they rejected Christ. Nobody gets to heaven because of their good works. They get there because they believe in Jesus, right? But after a person has rejected Christ, which is why they're going to go to hell, now the life that they have lived comes into play here. And they will be judged the severity of their punishment in hell will be determined by the um, how wicked a life they live while on the earth. The third miracle that happened the moment Jesus dismissed his spirit and died was that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Don't miss that. It's important. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Matthew is a Jew, and he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. So his reference to the curtain of the temple is one that would have been understood by every one of his Jewish readers. Every Jew knew what that meant, okay? The actual temple building, as we have said many times, was divided into into two rooms. The first was the holy place, and the second room was the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The first room contained three pieces of furniture. The table of showbread to the right the menorah to the left and then right in front of a curtain or veil stood a small golden uh, altar where the priests would burn incense and pray for the people and then you had this curtain and behind the curtain was the second room the holy of holies which originally contained the ark of the contained the ark of the covenant ark of the covenant was simply a small rectangular box measuring three foot nine inches long by two foot three inches wide, two foot three inches high. It was covered inside and out with gold and top with a lid of pure gold called the mercy seat. A lid of pure gold. It was called the mercy seat because once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, day of atonement, the high priest was allowed and only the high priest and only once a year was allowed to enter the veil to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the, uh, on the mercy seat. Now, what that was, it was to atone for all the sins of the nation, the nation that had not been atoned for. And this was God's way of giving uh, the nation of Israel grace and mercy because God had to hold sins you know, to their account Unless, of course, a sacrifice would be made that would atone for those sins. And so this was a national Day of Atonement, Day of Yom Kippur. And uh, the priest, high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And God would see the blood and it would, uh, and it would uh, allow him then to show mercy to his people collectively, nationally, and so on. Now, here's what I want to get to. The veil separating the two rooms. You think of a little veil, a little curtain, you don't know, no, uh, know. The veil separating the two rooms was literally, listen, a wall of woven fabric, one layer on top of another. It measured 60 feet high, this curtain, 60 feet high by 30 feet wide and was between 12 and 18 inches thick. It was made up of 72 braids each consisting of 24 cords. The veil was so heavy that it took 300 men consisting of priests and Levites to hang it. This veil was a reminder of how sin had erected, listen, a wall of separation between God and man, and how only the high priest could approach God to make atonement for the people through the blood of the sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, we read how the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that it was God who ripped that thick curtain wall in two. God did that, not man. God did this because the Old Testament sacrificial system, with all of its ceremonial laws, had been fulfilled in Christ and was now over, had now passed away. We no longer, and I'm including us, mankind, in this, we no longer needed animal sacrifices, um, the blood of which only temporarily covered sin anyways. Uh, But now the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God had paid for those sins completely and removed the stain of them from our lives forever. We no longer needed a priesthood that would be our mediator between us and God. Jesus was now our mediator Who tore the veil that separated God and man, allowing us to have bold access into God's presence? Listen, whenever we wanted, whenever we wanted. You might be thinking, "Well, how did they know God ripped the veil into from top to bottom? How did they know God ripped it?" They knew it because the priests were in the temple at 3 p.m. the very moment Jesus died, offering, preparing and offering the evening sacrifice to God. So, being in the temple at that very moment that Jesus. Said, it is finished to dismiss the spirit. And at that moment, they heard the, t- the you can imagine, a curtain 60 foot wide, uh, high, 30 foot wide, 18 inches thick. When God tore that thing, it made quite a noise. And they were there, they saw it, they realized what God had done. You say, well, how did that impact them? What did they do? Well, sadly, they eventually sewed the curtain back up and went on. Offering God their religious works, animal sacrifices, as a means by which they would approach him, instead of realizing that Jesus had paid the price of redemption, not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. 1 John 2:2, Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, John said, but also for the sins of the whole world. They didn't realize that when Jesus died on that cross, As he shed his blood, it ratified the new covenant. God had promised way back to to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the old covenant I made when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, that covenant which they broke. I'm going to write my laws in their hearts. And uh, this this was the new covenant. Of course, Jesus came to, to bring. The word covenant comes from the Hebrew word that means to cut. These were blood covenants. In the Old Testament, they killed animals to ratify the covenant uh, that they made with each other. And of course, the uh, old covenant under Moses, uh, Paul makes it a point to say it was ratified through the sprinkling of animal blood. Now the new covenant was ratified through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people didn't realize what was really going on here. They, could, they sewed the veil back up, they continued to, uh, to approach God, or try to, through the old sacrificial system, not realizing that in the new, under the new covenant, all believers are priests. All believers are priests who are now, in, and we are now encouraged to come boldly into the presence of God to offer prayer and praise to God anytime we want. Again, in the new covenant, every believer is a priest, and every day is Yom Kippur in the sense every day we can enter into the heavenly holy, holy of holies, and and praise God and pray to Him and so on. And so now from God's perspective, there was no more need of temples, mediator, priests, altars, sacrifices. Which is why Jesus said, it is finished right before he dismissed the spirit and the veil of the temple was torn into. It was his way of saying, the work of redemption is done. The payment for sin has been made. It's open house. It's open house. Anyone can come now, as long as they believe in me by faith. In Colossians chapter 2, we read something important. And I know I've talked about this before. I won't belabor it, but let me just touch on it for those folks who are new with us watching. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, Paul speaking, you were dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. In other words, the debt of, we owe God everything we do in the way of sin. Every thought we think, every um, uh, every uh, word we speak, every action we take that is contrary to God's word. Well, it gets written in our ledger. These are all the trespasses, uh, all the sins that we have committed against God. They have to be paid for. Uh, they have to be paid for. And Paul said when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled the handwriting of ordinances, all the trespasses and sins written in in our ledger. He forgave that, took them away, listen, by nailing them to his cross. When Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus took our sins out of the way by nailing them to his cross, he is referring to a practice by which guilty criminals paid their debt to society. In Paul's day, when a person was convicted of a crime or crimes, the authorities would write those crimes on a piece of parchment and nail it to his dungeon door when he was finished paying for his crimes they would take the parchment and write across the bottom to telestai which means paid in full paid in full and then that parchment was rolled up and given to the, uh, the person who had paid his debt to society and it was his receipt his receipt in a sense his proof that his debt to society for the crimes he had committed had been paid. Had been paid. Paul said that Jesus took all the crimes we had committed, and would ever commit, all of the sins that would ever be written in our ledger and nailed it to his cross. And Jesus, before he died from the cross, said, It is finished, the Greek to tell us die, paid in full. The result of this, Matthew 27, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, folks, did this mean that these men were saved simply because they acknowledged Jesus was The son of God not necessarily I mean we know in James chapter 2 verse 19 even the demons believe Jesus is the son of God and tremble but it definitely demonstrated that the events of Jesus crucifixion made a powerful impact on the unbelievers standing there by the cross that day a powerful impact in fact I hope the impact was so powerful that they did all wind up getting saved eventually I don't know about that I don't know about them but what about you, all right? What about you? I mean, they're all dead. You're still alive. You're still alive. You still have time to make a decision about Jesus Christ. I mean, guys, does his crucifixion and what we've gone through. um, Just to think on how torturous uh, a, a person, what they had to endure when they were crucified um, God didn't put his son through all of that lightly um, or unnecessarily, of course. I mean, does it have any impact on you? If you're new with us tonight, especially. As you hear about what Jesus Christ went through for you and, of course, me on that cross, um, does it have any kind of impact on your, in your heart? about the life that you're living right now, and more importantly, about about the life that is to come. Um, I mean, does the crucifixion of Jesus Christ cause you to pause and reflect on the heinousness of sin and how only the blood of the sinless Son of God could pay for those sins which would allow you and I to get to heaven? Now, I know that a lot of people, especially in this godless pagan culture we're in, Uh, immediately would respond by saying, I'm a good person. You know, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. Well, let me just say this as gently as I know how. No, you're not. Neither am I. There is no such thing as a good person. You might be better than me. I might be better than somebody else. But Jesus Christ is the standard. Not Phil Barnwire and not anyone else. You want to stand next to somebody who is the standard, stand next to Jesus. He was sinless. He was perfect if you're not sinless and perfect and don't tell me you are i know you're not well there's no way you can earn heaven by being good because to get there you have to be perfect that's why jesus said with men getting to heaven is impossible but through you know the son of god all things are possible and i just want to tell you that guys i mean this good friday I say we we celebrate Good Friday. That that takes people back. You're celebrating Jesus being crucified. I'm not celebrating his pain. I'm celebrating his love. I'm celebrating his willingness. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I, I celebrate his love for me. You should celebrate his love for you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell for eternity, but have everlasting life. That's what we celebrate, all made possible by Jesus going to the cross and dying, shedding his blood on our behalf for our eternal welfare. Now look, we're done. Let me just say this, though. There's many a skeptic who believes that when they laid Jesus' body in that tomb and rolled the stone over the opening, it meant Game over. I've heard people say, and I'll just paraphrase what I've heard, uh, you know, skeptics, uh, antagonists of Christianity. You know, this Galilean carpenter shot his mouth off so much, claiming to be someone great, son of God. Give me a break. That he brought the Roman government down on him eventually and got himself crucified, killed. (laughs) End of story. That's all. Jesus was nobody important. He was... uh, Carpenter from Galilee, uh, went around, uh, you know, uh, spouting off a bunch of uh, stuff about himself being great, son of God. Got him in trouble. Him trouble. Got himself in trouble with the Roman government because he was going around proclaiming himself a king, and they wouldn't tolerate insurrection, so they wound up killing him. End of story. End of story. Hey, look! I'm sure the forces of darkness rejoiced. And threw a party to celebrate their victory. I mean, Jesus is dead. We won. I'm sure the councils of hell threw a party. uh, Because, uh, you know, Jesus is dead. We won. We won. However, their celebrating was what we'll call premature. Premature. As one old preacher preacher said, it might have been Friday. But Sunday was a coming. The story is not over. The story is not over but again jesus died for you that you wouldn't have to die eternally in hell jesus suffered for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer forever in the lake of fire again john said he was the propitiation you know that word propitiation is a greek word that is also translated mercy seat we just talked about the mercy seat same Greek word for mercy seat is propitiation. It's a word that means to satisfy. God's righteousness through Christ's sacrifice was satisfied. Sin had to be paid for. And so when Jesus died, it satisfied God's righteousness and allowed him to extend to all of us mercy. Mercy, that we didn't have to go to hell. We could receive Christ and be children of God and spend eternity with him in heaven. But here's the thing. John opened up his gospel, chapter one, verse 12, when he said, you know, um, he has given everyone the opportunity to become children of God, but only those who believe in him and receive him as their savior. That's the thing. Uh, Growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, I believed everything about Jesus back then that I believe about Jesus now. I believe he was the son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead the third day. I believed everything I believe now about Christ. Trouble is, I wasn't saved back then, and now I am. Why? Because I believed, but I had not received Jesus into my heart as my own personal Lord and Savior. Will you do that? I'd like to pray with you right now, and then we'll have communion. But I want to pray with you right now. If you'd like to receive Jesus into your heart, uh, just repeat after me and remember, it's not the words, they're not magic words, it's what's in your heart. Say it from the heart to the Father, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Dear Lord, I come to you in your precious name. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I know that, Lord, you love sinners. I know you died for sinners. I know you died for me. And Lord, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe you came down to the earth, died for my sins, rose again from the dead the third day. And now, Lord, I receive you into my heart. Be my living Lord and Savior. Come in to my heart and become king of my life. Lord, I yield everything to you. I ask for mercy and grace to live for you now. Will you please fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might uh, go forth from this place now, uh, walking forward now in the spirit, that I might be able to serve you all the days of my life. And Lord, I just ask all this in your precious name. And Father, I just pray for all those who prayed that prayer, that Lord, you would get them into good Bible teaching churches, whether they live in the area and can come out to our church, which they're welcome to, or Lord, they're watching somewhere else around the country. Lord, lead them to a good solid Bible church that will teach them the truth. And Lord, we do thank you. We thank you from the bottom of our heart that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't deserve heaven, we're not good people. We are rebels, we are sinners. But we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of love who loves rebels, who loves sinners, and sent his son to die for sinners, that we might live with you in your kingdom forever as your children. And now, Lord, we want to come to you and celebrate communion. And Father, we ask you to bless this time of communion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, folks, what I'd like you to do is just take a moment to bow your heads And bring your hearts before the Lord, confessing just privately between you and the Lord, confessing to Him all the sins that you've committed. I mean, communion is not for perfect people. The Lord's Supper is not for perfect people. It's for redeemed sinners. Redeemed sinners. But that doesn't mean that once we're saved, we can sin and it's no big deal. That God doesn't care because I'm saved by grace. No, that's not true. And we want our fellowship with God to be constantly, um, you know, active and vibrant uh, sin separates us from God I mean not for eternity we won't lose our salvation but the flow of God's blessing his spirit will dry up and we will dry up so we want to bring our hearts before the Lord we want to confess our sins you know what they are And let's just take a moment to do that just bow your heads before the Lord and uh, before we partake of the bread and the cup just take a minute and bring your heart before the Lord and confess your sins to him Well, on the night before the cross, hours before the cross in the upper room, our Lord at one point, and they were celebrating Passover, of course, our Lord at one point took the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me, the body of Christ. And then our Lord took the cup. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. As often as you drink this cup, remember me, the blood of our Savior. Lord Jesus, we know that your word clearly teaches without the shedding of blood there could be no forgiveness of sins. But it would take the blood of the innocent dying for the guilty. And since we are all guilty, Lord, every person born into this world is guilty. Sinners can't die for sinners. Which meant we were in a hopeless place. A hopeless place. There was no way we could ever ascend out of the pit of condemnation to enjoy an eternity in your presence as children. But Lord, you were so rich in love and are so rich in love that you came down, became one of us, but a sinless man. The uh, last Adam, first Adam blew it for everyone. The last Adam, well, your death, Lord, redeems the whole human race if they want to be redeemed. And we thank you, Lord, that the opportunity is there. You're inviting the whole world to be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that your blood, which was uh, spilled for our redemption, is sufficient to save anybody who will come to you and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I want eternal life. I want forgiveness. Lord, I accept you into my heart as my Savior. Will you come in? Will you wash me of my sin? Will you fill me with your spirit? Will you adopt me into the family of God? And you said, Lord Jesus, nobody who comes to you will you ever turn away. We thank you, Lord. No matter how badly a person has lived their life, no matter how much sin they've committed, your invitation stands. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will accept you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. We thank you, Lord. And Father, we ask that you would continue to bless our live stream services. We do pray, Lord, that you would end this, uh, this uh, COVID-19 scourge, allowing us to get back to our normal activities, our jobs, back to church, Lord. Until then, we just pray you keep us all healthy and safe. And anyone we know right now, Lord, that has this disease, we ask in Jesus' name that you would touch their bodies and heal them and uh, return them to good health. So, Father, we thank you. We know that what looked like a defeat, when they put your body in that tomb, rolled the stone over the opening, and uh, a cry went out from the councils of hell, Jesus defeated, we've won, Jesus is dead. Well, that was Friday, (laughs) but Sunday wasn't coming. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Thank you for loving us. We ask you to bless our Easter Sunday service. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Come back Sunday at 10 for our Easter Sunday service. Love you guys. God bless you.